God bless you. Thank you, Don. <clears throat> well, this is the second in the series on Solomon. The last and first one was <clears throat> addressing his luxury. Luxury, learning, liquor, lust, and the Lord. That's the series. And today, uh, the second in the series, Solomon tried uh, learning. You're hearing me breathe, aren't you? Well, that's a good thing, but not here. <laughs> okay, thank you, Junior. <clears throat> okay, uh, we're going to look briefly at these scriptures that address the issue of Solomon and his wisdom. Many people forget um, the name of the meek man in the Old Testament, Moses. Seldom after you've heard it, you forget the name of the strong man of the Old Testament, Samson. But with Solomon, it was the wise man of the Old Testament. Solomon said, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that, the, that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. That's a lot. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, the Greeks in the Greco-Roman period would send their children to Egypt to study mathematics. They were the mathematical geniuses of the world, the math that built the pyramids, for example. The wisdom of Egypt uh, <clears throat> did not rise to the level of Solomon's, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. Think up a proverb, just a wise saying that no one else has thought up before. Then do it a 1,000 times or 3,000 times. And his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about the plant life. I should have uh, <clears throat> yellowed that in too, plant life, because I've put up here the ranges of his knowledge and the cedars of Lebanon, the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish from all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now, Solomon lived at a time when you could know everything that was, to, that was known about these subjects. Now, you can't do that today. All I have... I brought my phone with me. I, don't, I haven't called Solomon like Boatman uh, has done. I should have had him talk to Solomon for me. Hit Google, and I can access information about almost any subject in the world. I can find answers. The knowledge explosion, we can't know everything to be known even about a few subjects today, unlike the day of Solomon. His wisdom. <clears throat> Here are his uh, classes his college and university classes. In natural history, it said plants and animals. Ornithology, he 
He lectured on birds, geology, earth science, botany. He talked about plant life, herpetology, reptiles and amphibians, zoology. That was all in the text, folks, about the animal kingdom, arborology, trees and shrubs, ethology, uh, animal behavior, paleontology, fossils, marine biology, sea life. He was a creative writer. Literature, at least of three Old Testament books, the Song of Solomon, um, and uh, of course the uh, the Proverbs three thousand. We don't have all of them, but many of the Proverbs were Solomon's, and then the Book of Ecclesiastes, probably, probably material from Solomon. Three thousand Proverbs, thousand and five songs. He lectured ornithology, natural history, geology, zoology. He wrote. Three Old Testament books are at least responsible for the material in them. A literary and poetic genius, the George Gershwin, the Irving Berlin, or the Willie Nelson of ancient Israel. Yet he speaks across the ages and he tells us that an education without God is empty pursuit, a chasing after when a folly. And um, I'm not here this morning to make fun or put down education. My entire life has been as an educator. But the issue about education is know all that you can. Expand all the knowledge you are capable of expanding. Why? Because it increases the base of your influence. Why would you want a broad base of influence? For our Lord Jesus Christ, there's no better reason at all. I had a professor in lab science in grad school at Indiana, and he said, the most important question for you to ask at the end of your research, scientific research, whatever it is in psychology or whatever, is this, so what? What does all the research and investigation profit you So what? What good is it going to do? And for what purpose? For what good end? The sciences are dead end without the metaphysic of religion. Let me see if I put that up there. No, I didn't. Okay. Here, I want to apply Solomon to today. In the area of ecology, we have failed to stem the flood tide of pollution in our air, in our streams and lakes and oceans. And we have some of the best ecologists, the most knowledgeable researchers in the world. Psychology, my personal field, we have not found the cure for manic depression, bipolar, for schizophrenia, for paranoia, for the sexual deviations, for any of the ten personality disorders. Uh, And then, of course, any treatment, effective treatment for psychopaths and serial killers. Criminologists, we have some of the best in the world, but we have not been able to curb the epidemic of violent crime in our country right up here in our back door in Chicago, as an example. Medical science has not kept pace with the proliferation of viruses, and we've had a lesson on that just this past week from China. Viruses grow faster than we can find cures and infectious diseases, war infectious diseases. Social science has not found any preventative for war and poverty 
that curses our world, one of the four horse, two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. The sciences are dead ends, all of them dead ends, without the metaphysic of religion. What is the use of the advancement in science? For what purpose? So what? We advance science? The problem with science is we invent nuclear weapons. Science can do that. Invent a weapon that can blow up whole nations and countries. Well, what do we do with that information? See, science doesn't tell us what to do with it. It says we have the ability to do it, but we have to look over in either philosophy or religion to find the morality of whether or not we should or should not use what science has done. Consider the precision of science. Many of you realize that my wife has a very severe visual handicap. She's just about blind. She has a specialist over here in... Am I pointing in the right direction? Iowa City. Iowa City. That way? <laughs> that way. Okay, wherever it is. Uh, an op- <clears throat> ophthalmologist. Well, he's not just an ophthalmologist, Dr. Stone. He's also a geneticist. He has found the specific gene that is the cause of retinitis pigmentosa. We sat listening to him <clears throat> as he talked to my wife and her sister, both of whom have uh, severe retinitis pigmentosa. And he said, we have been able to insert stem cells into the uh, retinas of rats to rebuild dead cells. You know, once a nerve cell dies, you can't fix it. You can't replace it. They don't regrow. They're gone. How do you rebuild them? Stem cell research is now the cutting edge in research science, in many, many fields, particularly in visual. Now, he said, the problem is we damage the rat's eyes in inserting uh, these uh, stem cells. Now, he said, when it comes to stem cells, you know, um, fetal uh, stem cells, some want to use those. He said, it was a moral issue with us to use fetal stem cells. We don't use them. We found that adult stem cells... Uh, are as functional and as helpful in research as fetal stem cells. <clears throat> and he said, but the problem was the damage. And so we needed an instrument. And he said, I found an engineer who said, I can design the instrument to implant those stem cells. And he said, now, he said, I have a jeweler in Iowa City who says, you get the instrument, I'll make it. He made the instrument. Now they have inserted those stem cells into rats' eyes, 50 rats. And they're working together, uh, of course, with the Food and Drug Administration. And um, talk about precision. I can't even imagine how they're able to do something like that. And then you say, finally, so what? What is all this knowledge that borders almost on the miraculous what science is able to do. So what? What is it for? If it isn't for the goodness of the world, really for the expansion of the gospel. Remove the Ten Commandments from the courthouse or anywhere else, and what happens? Murder, stealing, lying, adultery, all get redefined. Former speaker of the House, Paul Ryan said, there is no moral relativism when it comes to neo-Nazis and white supremacists. I 
um, several years ago, spoke at a youth rally here in Kiwani. And we had a campfire service, and I uh, talked to the youth at the campfire. And afterwards, a high school girl came up to me, and she said, Mr. Ewald, do you believe in absolutes, an absolute truth? I said, absolutely, because I thought she was just trying to badger me. Absolutely. She says, I don't. Oh, you don't? Why? Well, she says, I have a high school teacher who has taught me that truth is relative. In other words, you decide whether something is true, and it may be true for you, but it may not be true for somebody else. I said, well, let me give you something to take back to that high school teacher. Bertrand Russell, an atheist, has said, if everything is relative, there's nothing left for anything to be relative to. You take that back. It self-destructs relativism. And you ask that teacher if truth is relative, what he's going to do if his house is broken into, he and his wife and children are threatened with their lives, the house, everything is stripped from the house and stolen and taken away. All of a sudden, morality becomes an issue. There is a right and a wrong, whoever that teacher may be. No absolute truth. Yeah, some things are absolute. 1 Corinthians one twenty says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God has pleased God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, not preaching, but what was preached, that is gospel, to save those who believe. Now, that word wisdom there, actually, the Greek word there is sophists. Sophists. Do you know what sophistry is? Now, think in terms of the politics we've been reading about in the news for the last few years, if you please. Sophistry is taking a weaker argument and making it sound the stronger argument with rhetoric. It's using words in such a skilled way that a weak argument can be made to sound like a strong argument with the simple cleverness and twists of words. The sophists were the wise fools of the Old Testament, or of the uh, uh, first century uh, Christianity. Now we have what we call sophomores in college. I've had to deal with hundreds and hundreds of sophomores. Sophomore is a Greek, two Greek terms, which means wise fool, a wise moron, sophomoron. Now, when the freshmen would come in, they, they had the beautiful innocence on their faces. They were eager uh, to learn. They were there for the right reason. Then they met the sophomores. The sophomores would corrupt the freshman. It's a reality of life, folks. I could take a student, a troublemaker on campus, and <clears throat> I'd put him in a room, and, and I'd put a really sharp student who's really got it together in that same room. You know where the flow of influence would be? I would hope that the flow of influence would be from the good student to the bad, but the contrary almost always happened. The influence was from the bad student to the good. He would bring the good student down. 
Now, that's sophomores, wise fools. That's what he's talking about here. Wise? No, they're just tricky. That's all. Our enemy, I would say our enemy, is the law courts. When our law courts say it's a crime to spank your children, but it's okay to have a woman's right to kill and abort a baby in the womb. <clears throat> Maybe children can teach us something. I, I have a little list here. Uh, you know, they say, from the mouths of babes, wisdom from children. When your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid, don't answer him. Never tell your mom her diet's not working. Never ask your three-year-old brother to hold your tomato. If your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. You can't trust dogs to watch your food. When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. You can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. If you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. No matter how hard you try, you can't baptize a cat. The World Congress of Families, Global Coordinator Alan Carlson, has written, The World Congress of Families will prohibit anything that suggests that the natural family, man and a woman married with children, is normal or typical. But... Under this latest advance toward a brave new world of polymorphous perversion, California textbooks will no longer be able to use the words like mother and father and husband and wife because they suggest that heterosexuality is the norm, even though that is manifestly the case in California. The norm is still, even in California, a man and a woman and a child constitute a family. Proverbs 9.13. The woman folly is loud. I don't know why he uses woman there. That doesn't sound very good for women, but uh, it's actually talking about the folly of folly. It's loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house and on the seat of the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet. That actually is talking about adultery. Food eaten in secret is delicious. That's actually talking about robbery, thieves. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. Can you have educational excellence Without God? Yes, you can have excellence, educational excellence. I have an example right here. Two killers of the Columbine High School, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. They were excellent readers and writers, both of them. They were intelligent, clever, and self-motivated. And in their senior year, those two boys were making, uh, uh, set up actually a video production class. They made movies. Eric himself 
was gobbling up literature. He was reading Shakespeare and Macbeth and King Lear and Tess of the Ubervilles. He could never get enough of the philosophies of Nietzsche and Hobbes. Excellent education without God, however, is like putting an AK-47 into the hands of a moral blind, blind man. Years ago, let me first say, the home is the cradle of learning. Ask any teacher how easy it is to undo what that child has learned at home. It's almost impossible. My wife taught second grade in uh, Brownstown, Illinois, when I was ministering. We were ministering to the church down there. Second grade, she had a kid in her class that was absolutely toilet mouth. He was foul-mouthed, swearing every day, just awful. Well, on parent-teacher conferences, my wife called that attention to his mother, that he seemed to have used an awful, awful, vile vocabulary. And she said, well, he do, he's not hearing that at home. What do you want to bet? How easy it is for a teacher to undo those habits that are learned at home. President Ronald Reagan said, without God, democracy will not and cannot last very long. This week, I saw, I actually saw three people being sworn in to testify before Congress. They made their, <clears throat> um, oh, they took their uh, vow. And they sat down, but they failed to use the phrase, so help me God, at the end of their testimony or their introduction. And so one of the men in the panel said, uh, they uh, failed to say, so help me God, let's give them that opportunity. And the uh, <clears throat> uh, congressman in charge there said, no, 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 um, some of them don't want to, but some of them do want to, shouldn't we let them? And folks, it was Jerry Nadler who in that moment said, no, we are not going to allow them to say, so help me God, even though it was designed by the founding fathers of our country. You know Jerry Nadler? One of the leaders this last week in the um, attempt to dethrone uh, our president. Pray, oh, pray, like Paul enjoins us, for our leaders. They need it, all of them. Well, <clears throat> I have an example of this. <clears throat> uh, and I, I'm going to try and make this clear. This is maybe a little bit complicated, but this comes out of my own experience of 48 years of teaching psychology. In other words, I have taught through probably about 16 different editions of the most, uh, most widely used psychological textbook in America. Now, it's not written by a Christian by, by any means, but I taught from it nevertheless. But I would instruct my students about the, uh, the weak side of the presentation of psychology through the eyes of evolution. Anyway, values clarification. In 1966, a book was published <clears throat> that advocated value clarification, not teaching values. Just helps people clarify what their values are, but you don't tell them what their values should be. That's the book. Then in 1978, Simon 
from that, that Simon there, wrote Values Clarification, a handbook of practical strategies for teachers and students, which became a bestseller among teachers in American public schools. Quote from that book, Make students aware of their feelings, their own ideas, their own beliefs, their own value systems. It is entirely possible that children will choose not to develop values. It is the teacher's responsibility to support this also. If they don't want to have any value system, if they don't care about right or wrong, let them have that view. No need to know right from wrong. I think maybe there is a need. Lawrence Kohlberg from Harvard University, he's taught at Yale, University of Chicago, and Harvard. These are not small schools. He says, moral education is best conceived of as a natural process of dialogue. Now, that's a Socratic method of question and answers in education. I don't tell you what you should think, but I ask you questions that will elicit from you what you should be thinking among peers, rather than a process of didactic instruction or telling them what is right and what is wrong, or preaching to them. We don't do that. Now, Lawrence Koberg, he researched the moral development of children for 20 years. This you will find in every single psychology book in America. I would say every single one of them is going to have this development of when how, and how do children learn right from wrong. Where do they derive it? Where do they learn it? And how do they learn it? And these are the stages that children go through to learn it. Believe that moral development has six stages. There they are. Kohlberg established what he called the Cluster Lab School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He got this huge Harvard grant to set up a school where these kids would learn uh, moral values. In 1974, for five years on a huge grant from Harvard, in Massachusetts, he had 30 students in this school. They were out, uh, oh, I'm sorry here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoop, there we go. Push the wrong button. Uh, they were out of their nature, out of their own nature to develop a moral system. But the problem was they began stealing from each other. They were using drugs. In school, they divided racially. They violated the sex rules. So they needed monitors, a police system, over the students. And so some of the students became police force. They did the same thing. They involved in drugs and were stealing one another's bicycles. The whole thing became corrupt, but it was up to them to decide how what we would determine as right and wrong. Kohlberg, Harvard, Yale, University of Chicago ultimately made this statement. This statement does not appear in psychology textbooks. It needs to be there. It's not there. Why? This was in the Humanist magazine. Years of practice, Kohlberg said, in education, moral education, have led me to realize my notion was mistaken. I was wrong. Listen to a Harvard scholar admitting he was wrong. You don't hear that very often. The educator must be a socializer teaching value, content, and behavior. you got to tell the kids right from wrong. The concept guiding moral education must be partly indoctrinative. you got to teach them, especially in a world in which children engage in stealing, cheating, and aggression. Wow. That's maybe as good an illustration as I think I could come up with. So children, basically... And youth are not naturally moral.
and maybe later on I'll get to that proverb, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a mistranslation of that text. It's not a promise. It's a warning. But it's usually translated as a promise. Learning. What is it? Folks, our learning is a gift from God. Education is a gift from God. Why? To be used in kingdom work. Know as much as you possibly can know for the sake of the kingdom. If I were to ask you today... Who, you, who do you think was the greatest physicist of all time? Some might say Isaac Newton. I would have to say Albert Einstein. Um, did I put Einstein up here? No, that's Schweitzer. <clears throat> who is the greatest mathematician of our times? Bertrand Russell, probably the leading mathematical mind in the world of our day. Before he died, Einstein uh, and Russell... Physics, mathematics, invited the leading scientists of the world to London, England to discuss the possibility of the world preventing itself from self-destruction by nuclear war. They met, they discussed it, they issued what came to be known as the Einstein-Russell Manifesto. In that manifesto, Einstein and Russell make this statement. We have talked to the people, the greatest scientists in the world, and the greatest minds in the world have no answer. We've talked to the people who know the most, and the people who know the most are the most pessimistic. Quote from that manifesto. Physics, mathematics, the king and queen of the sciences, two of the brightest minds in the world of those sciences. Pessimism. Where is hope? With all the scientific advancement, so what? Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer was 21 years old when he wrote his Ph.D. uh, philosophy uh, on Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason. If you want, have trouble going to sleep some night, that would solve insomnia, I'll tell you. It's t- tough material. But he wrote, uh, he became interested in theology, and so he studied religion, got a Ph.D., a doctorate of theology, wrote a book entitled The Quest of the Historical Jesus, and in my master's thesis, I had to deal with that book that he wrote. It's still a standard item, The Quest of the Historical Je- Jesus in the field of theology. Well, while he was uh, studying theology, he became interested in medicine, and he became a medical doctor, Ph.D., Th.D., and M.D. And what's he decide to do with all this knowledge? He wants to become a missionary in Central Africa. His colleagues said, Schweitzer, you could teach in most universities in the world and name your salary. Why do you want to take all this education to the illiterate natives of Africa? Now, this is where I would tell my students, I want you to write this down in your notes. This is important. Schweitzer, in his little autobiography entitled Out of My Life and Thought, answered that question. Here's his answer. Where my talents meet the needs of the world, that's where God wants me to be. That is really good. Where my talents, my abilities, my gifts, granted by the grace of God to me, 
Meet the cancer wounds of my world. That's where God wants me to live. That means I've got to really look fearlessly at myself to discover what has God given me, the best gifts that I have. Look around me to see the deep cancer sores in my world. And where those two lines cross, I feel I am mandated under God to plant my life and live it out there in his service. Where my talents meet the needs of the world, that's where God wants me and you to be. Oh, incidentally, he was interested in music, too. He became renowned as an organist. He would come to America from Germany, and he would play uh, concerts on the organ. became so interested in organ music that he wrote a book on how to build and repair pipe organs that still use today. Quite a man. This is my class that I taught uh, on counseling at, um, uh, in um, Austria. Uh, this lady here, incidentally, was a medical doctor, Lubov, from Ukraine. Ukraine. Been in the news lately? Yes. A Christian medical doctor in a Russian hospital. She said they would constantly make fun of her, but she says, I just let it roll off. They can't really best my Christian faith, my underpinnings. But I want you to meet Yuri over here. Yuri's not his name. This is Yuri. <clears throat> really an interesting guy. Yuri ministers. I had no idea of this. He ministers to 10 Christian churches in Iran. Iran. I gave this assignment. I gave it on the web before I even met my class. And the assignment was, I want you to describe the most stressful experience you've ever had in your life. I want to know the psychological, emotional, physiological, sociological effects of that experience on your life. Now, he wrote back a very general answer to my question. And I said, no, Yuri, I will give you credit for the assignment, but you needed to be specific. When he got to class in Vienna, he said, Mr. Ewald, I could not be specific. He said, this last year of my life has been the worst year of my life in terms of stress. We had a president in Iran, he said, who began emptying the churches, all the Protestant churches in Iran. He wanted them emptied. And he said, I thought it was curtains for us. But he said, we have a new president. The new president is very accommodating and friendly to religion. Actually, that was the president that Obama connected with, incidentally, if you want a, a little polit, <clears throat> political footnote. He said, you go back to my brothers and sisters in America, and you tell them we love them, and you tell them the politicians are trying to close our doors, but God is opening them. In 1924, in the Paris Olympics, a young man by the name of Eric Liddell won the 400-meter race. He came to be known as the Flying Scotsman. He set a record that remained in the 400 for 12 years. Eric Liddell became the inspiration for the Academy Award-winning film, 
chariots of fire. Eric Liddell said one time, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. God, in his providence and grace, has given every single one of us here a gift. A gift to be used in the service of the master. And when we use it in the service of the master, we begin to feel his pleasure. And there is nowhere else in the world where you will find pleasure than at that point where you use your gifts in the service of the king. You will find yourself on the top of Mount Everest. Feel the pleasure of God. <clears throat> so much for wisdom, so much for folly. A lot of evidence of folly in our world, isn't there? But there is evidence of wisdom. There is a knowledge that transcends, <clears throat> transcends all earthly knowledge. And uh, all the sciences, as I said, are dead ends without the metaphysic of religion. I am here as an educator, but I am here to, I hope, demonstrate the foundation of religion as a basis for education. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.